Well, are you thankful? You should be. We all have things to be thankful for. Because no matter how bad life gets, God is still at work. Amen? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to continue looking at 1 John and continue to let John kick us in the stomach. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. Here's God's word. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we, sh- we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For, wherever, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive for him, from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abide in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Pray with me. Father, this is your word, and it is truth, and it is perfect, and it is holy, and it contains your will for our life. And so, Spirit, Through your power, I pray that you take this preached word and apply it to our hearts. Apply it to my heart, for I need it as well. And I pray that you take these words and glorify Christ through them. May he alone be the glory, not us and not me. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, last week, we, um, John began to show us what it means to live as the children of God, what it, how to live as the people of God in a broken and fallen world. So he challenged us, and he assured us that, that to that end. He challenged us to live as the children of God. He assured us that we were children of God. He tells us that to live as the children of God means we reflect the righteousness of God in our life. We will practice that righteousness that Christ has given to us. And in First John 3, verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And what else did he say? Neither is the one who does not love his brother. So John 
Now he's moving away from practicing righteousness, doing things that God wants us to do, to now loving other people. Well, this is what it means to, be, to live as a children of God. We live for God, we love God, but we also love and serve our neighbor as well. The love of God should be reproducing in your life. His love for you should be lived out toward your love for others. And this is something that John has already talked about. Remember, John is repetitive. So don't forget that. And he's repetitive for a reason. Because we always forget the same, the same truths that we should not forget. We forget them every week and every day. But he returns to love here. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from, him from the beginning. That we should love one another. How? How does that look? But before we get into the how, John tells us how love does not look. How we should not love. Verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You know the story of Cain and his younger brother Abel, right? I'm sure you read that story. There were sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a herdsman. That was their vocation, a farmer, a shepherd. But as time went by, the Bible says, the brothers brought a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord. Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The word says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, offering, the Lord did not have regard. And the Bible doesn't give us reasons of why that is, but it does show us Cain's response to that. He was angry. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. You must rule over it. Did Cain take heed to those words of the Lord? Did he, did he receive that invitation from the Lord? No, he did not. What did he do? He led his brother to the field. And he rose up against him, took his life. And then when the Lord began to question Cain about it, what did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Are you? And now in 1 John chapter 3, John gives us his commentary on Genesis 4. He says, Cain was of the evil one. Murdered his brother. Why? Not because his brother was evil. Not because Abel was bad. It's the opposite. Because Cain's deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. What were the deeds? Why were they evil? See, the only recorded deed we have of Cain is the sacrifice and offering he brought to God. The fruit of the ground. That was, that's the deed he brought to God. And the God did not have regard for it. Why? I believe because... Cain's heart was not right. His motives were not right. His deeds were evil because his heart was bad. He was filled with hate, even when he brought the offering. Psalm 51 says, For you do not delight in sacrifices, 
or I will give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh Lord, you will not despise. Outward righteousness must be tied with a heart that is right with God. You understand? Looking good on the outside means nothing if you're dirty on the inside. So what does that mean? It means you can do all the right things and still not know Jesus. You can practice all the righteousness you want to and still not be right with God. Cain proves that. He brought a sacrifice to God, an offering to God, and his heart was not right. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Cain was already resentful, hateful, and envious of his brother before that day? The Bible doesn't tell us that. But do you think he was before that day? I believe so. And his jealous and envious and hateful heart finally led him to murder. And murder there, the word is used there, it means to cut the throat as slaughtering an animal. Cain led his brother to the field and slaughtered him, cut his throat in cold blood because he was evil and his brother was righteous. And in committing this heinous crime, Cain showed himself to be of the evil one. And what does that mean? One Christian said that the statement that Cain was of the evil one is to be understood in the same sense of our Lord's words to those who try to take his life. You are of your father, the devil. And seeking his life, they showed themselves to be the spiritual children of the evil one, who was a murderer from the beginning. And so was Cain. The first murderer in the Bible was a spiritual child of the evil one. And we, as children of God, how should we take that? How, what, 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 what does that mean for us? The evil one and his children are haters. They are always going to hate on the people of God. And the children of God not to be like them or not to live like them or not to live in hate. Nor should we be surprised when the world hates you. You shouldn't act surprised by that. Do not be surprised, brothers, sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. What John is, does here, he shows that Cain's hatred of his brother is now seen in the world hatred of God's people. God's children. And remember, when he talks about the world this way, he's talking about humanity that is in opposition to God, in rebellion against God. There will always be hostility and conflict between the people of God and the world that rebels against him. There will always be that. Wickedness and righteousness will never be BFFs. Never. Never be best friends forever if you don't know text and language. Wickedness and righteousness will be BEFs, bitter enemies forever. Forever. And so when the world hates you, do not be surprised by that. You should expect it in some degree. This is what Jesus told the disciples in the upper room. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We should expect it. But don't let it depress you. Don't even let it discourage you. You see, humanity that is in opposition to God shows its true spiritual condition. 
And that's death. Spiritual death. Verse 14b um, says, whoever does not love God abides in death. But the children of God, if you know Jesus, you are no longer spiritually dead. Because Jesus has chosen you out of the world. When you come to saving faith in him, you, there's a spiritual resurrection that takes place. A spiritual resurrection takes place for all of those who come to faith in Christ. You pass out of spiritual death into spiritual life. That's what happens. And our love for the brothers, our love for other people, and our love for even our enemies is a fruit of that new life in Jesus. And so the children of God do not continue to live in hate. Do you follow me? The children of God do not continue to live in hate. And see, hate is not a fruit of the new life. Life, love, are the fruit of our new nature in Christ. Death and hate is a fruit of our old nature. The old man, the old woman. And John's point, point here is that we should be driven by our new nature in Christ, not the old one. I was listening to a talk show. I, I love listening to sports talk radio. That's what I listen to nowadays because I, I, I love sports. And this host was talking about some comments that an NFL quarterback made about his rival's team, within his, a rival team within his division. You see, this team has a, a show called Hard Knocks. It's on HBO. And this quarterback was asked if he ever watched the show. He said, honestly, I haven't tuned in. I hate the Jets, so I refuse to support them. I have no interest in that show. I'm sure people like it, but that's not something I have no interest in watching. I would love to say a lot, a lot of mean things, but I'd rather not do that either. So he hates the Jets. Now this radio commentator I was listening to, he said, hate is a healthy thing as long as you don't hurt somebody. Now, hate is a healthy thing as long as you don't hurt anybody. Now, what do you think about that? And realize that this guy, he, millions of people listen to this guy every day. And he's saying hate is a healthy thing. As long as you don't hurt anybody, it's okay for me to hate you. Is that true? Not according to John. Verse 15, John says, if any, everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life about it in him. Wow. Which one is it? Is it healthy or is it murder? According to God, it's murder. And see, John pulls our heart away from this external behavior and works to the attitudes of our heart. See, Cain had a heart problem. It's not just a behavior problem. And when you hate your brother and when you hate other people, you have murdered them in your heart. Now, that's deep. That's convicting. And John is just reinforcing the words of Christ. The words that Christ preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, for everyone, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. counsel. Whoever says to his brother, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. From the overflow of our hearts, people, comes all kinds of stuff. If you only knew the things that are in the hearts of people, you'd be like, wow, I never saw that coming. This week, how many people have you led to the back alley of your heart and cut their throats? How many? How many people in your heart have you led to the field inside your heart and took their life in your anger, in your bitterness, in your resentment toward them? How many have I? How many of us continue to walk around in unrepentant hate toward other people? You see, when the world hates us, that should not surprise us. But when other believers hate other believers now, that should be surprising. When other believers hate other believers, that should surprise you because it's not right. And we, in the church, it's common within the church to have gossip, slander, resentment, jealousy, envy. It's common. Who in this church do you resent? Who in this church are you jealous of? Who in this church do you, you can't stand? It gets on your nerves. You say, well, no one yet, but it will come. And what are you going to do when it comes? And just the nature of we're all sinners, so let's not pretend like we're going to always love and get along well. That's not always going to be the case. Conflict will come. But when it comes, how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to continue to walk in it? Or are you going to deal with it? If it's not anyone in the church, is it a neighbor, co-worker, someone from a different denomination, different race? I know what you're saying. Alex, we don't hate or resent people. We good Southern Christian folk here in Alabama. That's who we are. We don't hate nobody. Sure. Sure. But what about in your heart? See, under no circumstances is hate a healthy thing. One Christian says, for we wish him to perish whom we hate. Whom you hate, you wish them to perish. You wish them to not even exist. And we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so if you have eternal life in you, if you know Jesus, you will not continue to live that way. It would be uncomfortable for you to live in unbitter, to live in unrepentant hate, to live in bitterness and jealousy and envy. If that, if you're not uncomfortable about that, then you need to do some business with the Lord. Yeah, this is what John is talking about. If you are in Christ, then you will be uncomfortable hating on other people. It would drive you to repentance. You would not just be comfortable living there. And if you do, John said that's evidence of spiritual death. Or something, you not understand something about the gospel. If you think that's okay. You see, hate is not clothing of the new nature. I've already said that. It's clothing of the old nature. It's a filthy garment of our old nature. And Christians have become too comfortable dressed in those nasty clothes. Walking around as if they not have you have not been changed. And we justify it. Well, they made me angry. That's why I don't like them. You are a new creation in Christ. And Christ has given you new garments to wear. 
Are you wearing those garments? That new life. And love is evidence of the new life. It is evidence of the new life. Well, can you give me a practical example? An example is this. You grow, you grow up in the South a racist, non-believer. You become to Jesus, you should no longer be a racist. That's what I'm talking about. That's an example. If you were a racist before Jesus, when you come to know Jesus, you should no longer be a racist. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of change I'm talking about. And if you continue to be one, then it's something about the gospel you ain't understanding. You see what I'm saying now? Is the point clear now? Once was a racist, no longer a racist than Jesus. If I continue to be a racist, then it means something about me and Jesus ain't right. That's what I'm talking about. Being in Christ leads to a changed life, a repentant life. How are we to love? Verses 16 and 17. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Hate is negative, love is positive. Love is positive, it seeks the good of another person, and even to the point of self sacrifice. That's love. Sacrificial love is what Christ has for us. And our sacrificial love has its foundation in Christ's sacrificial love. By this, all believers know what sacrificial love looks like. Jesus laid down his life for you when you were his enemy. And now we are to do the same for the brothers. You see, Cain's hatred led to murder. But Jesus' love led him to self-sacrifice. And now we who, who, who are believers should be willing to follow Christ's example, following his footsteps. His love should compel us to love other people. If you're really understanding that love, that love he has for you, then it's going to compel you to love other people sacrificially. Your family, your wife, your kids, your co-workers, your neighbors, even those who get on your nerves. That's the power of Christ's love. Is it compelling you? Is it compelling me? And love here does not necessarily mean taking your life. It doesn't necessarily mean death. But it, as one Christian says, it's, it's willingness to surrender that which has value to you in order to reach another. Sacrificial love. Love is willing, willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. That's sacrificial love. That's what one Christian said. Have you surrendered things in your life in order to enrich another? Are you willing to lay down your right to be right in order to enrich, enrich another? Are you, am I willing to lay aside certain pleasures and habits, possessions, status, positions, or, or whatever it is in order to enrich another? Am I willing to do that? And how many of you, if I put you on the spot, or answer yes to that question, even though in your heart it's no? Because it's, you know, we don't like being honest in the church. If I put you on the spot, would you be honest? Would you say no? Even would you say yes, even when in your heart you know it's no? Come on, Alex. I don't know. 
I know it's common to hear people say, well, I love everybody. I've heard that a thousand, from many people. I love everybody. I get along with everybody. I'm easy to get along with. I'm understanding. I'm a good listener. That may be true. But I want you to take notice what John does in, in verses 16 and 17. I didn't see this at first, but a few commentaries pointed this out. I'm going to read them again. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, in verse 16, he talks about our brothers, plural, our brothers. In verse 17, he moves to brother, singular. Why? Is that by accident? No, it's by design. And as C.S. Lewis says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, aspirating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving no one in particular. I read that again. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Saying I love the lost in general. Saying I love my enemies in general. Saying I even love the poor in general can just be an excuse for you loving none of them in particular. You see, I love everybody has become an a, a, a empty cliche in no meaning, with no meaning. And John doesn't let us get away with that. He says, whoever claims to be a child of God, and he has the world's goods, and he sees his brother or sister in need, and yet closes his heart against him or her, how does God love abide in you? Good question. Powerful question. See, the reality for most of us is that we really don't want to see poverty, if we're honest. We really don't want to see the broken lives of other people, the living conditions of other people. We don't want to see it. Because once you see it, what happens? What feelings start to come up inside once you see that stuff? The capital R, you start to feel some type of responsibility. And we don't want to feel that responsibility. So you're like, you know what? That's not my cup of tea. I really see it on TV. But I don't want to see it face to face. And John says, if you are in a position to help someone, and then you actually see the need, you see the brokenness, you see the living conditions, you see the poverty, and yet you close your heart to that. How does the sacrificial love of Jesus abide in you? How? No compassion, no pity, no mercy, no desire to help. What do you do when you see others in need? What do I do? Do I criticize? Do I make judgments? Do I hate on them? Do I laugh at them? Do I call them lazy? Do I say, well, they made their own bed, and you're lying? Do, do I say, well, they had the same opportunities as me. I grew up in the projects too, just like they did. I got out, why can't they get out? 
It's not my responsibility to give back to them my hard-earned resources that I worked hard for. They just needed us. They didn't need us to do better. What do you say when you see those types of needs? Where is your heart this morning, beloved of God? Is it closed to those whom you see in need? In his letter, letter from the Birmingham jail, Dr. Martin Luther King responded to an article written by some clergymen in Birmingham who called his nonviolent protests extreme. One of the points in his letter that he makes is that everyone is an extremist for something. He says, the question is not whether we'll be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? Where are you this morning? Where are you extreme about this morning? You see, believers should be extremists for love, not hate. The extension of justice, not the preservation of injustice. See, there's a song called, There's a Thin Line Between Love and Hate. That song is a lie. The line between love and hate should be a thick brick wall for the believer. A thick brick wall, not a thin line that you hop over and back over at will. It should be, that wall should be growing bigger and thicker as you grow in Christ. Growing more in love and growing less in hate. If you're growing in Jesus. Now one of the most common ways. In the history of the church. That we have seen the church close its hearts to people. Is through silence. Oh yeah. Silence. What do you mean by that Alex? Silence on issues of injustice. Poverty. Social issues. We're silent. Because. Well we justify silence. Because the church should only engage in spiritual stuff. That's the mission of the church. And and so we play it safe. We play it comfortable. We want to be neutral. And you got to realize, silence is not neutral. You know that, right? Silence is not you being on the fence. Let's call a spade a spade. Silence is you closing your heart to the needs of people. It's you turning a blind eye. That's you when you're silent. Your silence proves that you proves that that you are on the side of the injustice that's, that's being inflicted passively. John is saying, if you are in a position to help, if you have the world's goods, and if you see with your own eyes the needs of a brother or sister or anyone in need, and you are silent, you close your heart against that person, how can the love of God abide in you? How? Another quote from Dr. King says, We will remember not the words of our enemies, but what? The silence of our so-called friends. If they are your friend, then you won't be silent. Be more practical, Alex. 
If my kids are bad, doing things they shouldn't do, and if you are silent about it, then you don't love me. You need to love me enough to say, pull me inside and say, brother, I saw your kids doing this. Don't say I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to offend you. You didn't tell me because you really don't love me. If you loved me, you would have told me. That's what I'm talking about. The words of a friend may hurt, but it's, it's a good hurt when it's done in love. Don't be silent, but speak. That your words be backed up with deeds. In verse 18, we're told not to love in word and deed, but in truth. Deed and truth. See, this friend's talking about deeds, but he adds in truth as well. And why is that? We are called to a sacrificial love that is seen in our deeds. But though, but that doesn't mean we aid and accept sinful behavior. See, to love in truth means your, your, your deeds are are grounded in the word of God. Because we are also to love in truth, love at times means you hold people accountable. You have boundaries. God's truth sets those boundaries of our deeds. Because at times you say, no, I'm not going to participate in that. Participating in that would not be love. It would be enabling, which is not love. Love is sacrificial, but it's clothed in God's truth, always and forever. What I love about John is that even though he writes in black and white statements, you know, he does have a pastor heart, and it's seen throughout the letter. And I know you can read First John, and you can think, well, John's just talking about perfectionism. He's talking about, I can actually have a sinless life. Now, if you read... First John, out of context, you can probably get those things. But that's not what he's talking about. John fully knows quite well that the children of God will still struggle with sin. He knows that you're not going to love other people perfectly. And what he does is what many pastors fail to do many times, is that he has balance in this letter. And everything he said up to this point is for those who need a kick in the pants. Sometimes we need a kick in the pants because we're really not loving people well. And he reminds us of that. And so he throws cold water on your heart to wake it up. He does it to lead you to conviction. It leads you to repentance, not to beat you up. Now on the other side of the aisle, you have those who, who, who need to pull the kick me sign off their back because they live in condemnation, self-doubt, doubt in their salvation. They see clearly how often they fall short. They need assurance. And in the verse, and again in verse 19, this is exactly what he does. By this we should all by this you know that we are the truth, and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. The reality is that sometimes our hearts does condemn us. Sometimes justly, sometimes unjustly. And when it does, we can reassure our heart. And one of the ways to reassure our heart is that is love there. Do you really love people? If you love people, that should reassure you that you're in the truth, that you are a believer, because you're growing in love, growing less in hate. And the second reason is, 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 is thing that should reassure your heart is that God is greater than your heart, greater than your heart. 
We can pacify our heart. Is what John talking about there. Pacify it with God's truth. It means resting in the fact that God's verdict over you is not guilty. Do you know that? His verdict is not guilty over you. And whenever your heart tries to condemn you, then you've got to rely on that truth. I'm not guilty in Christ. I'm not guilty in Christ. I'm not guilty in Christ. That always trumps our heart. And if you're living in self-doubt, doubting your salvation, beating yourself up right now, you don't have to. God is greater than your heart. What does Paul say in Romans 8? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen? Amen. You got to do that. And the dangers of living in self-doubt is that that too impacts your relationship with Jesus. Just like living in sin and hate will. Because those who live in condemnation, you have no confidence to approach God at all. You don't believe he will hear your prayers, so you hardly ever pray. You beat yourself up. You, you know, life is really about you when you do that. And you don't have, you don't really, sin, you really don't live in the spirit. You're not living by faith, you're living by sight. You're not trusting in God, you're still trusting in yourself. And in verse 21, he, John shows that you don't have to live that way. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask from him, he gives us because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. With a pacified heart, we can approach God with confidence. And our prayers are answered. Our prayers are answered because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. What pleases God? Verse, verse 23, having faith in Jesus. Having faith in Jesus and loving one another. Those things please God. And when you are living a life that pleases God, it is safe to assume that your will is beginning to be in line with his will. Your heartbeat is in rhythm with his heartbeat. And that will be reflected in things you pray for. It is safe to assume if you are doing the things that please God, your will is beginning to be in line with his will. Your heartbeat is in rhythm with his heartbeat. And that would be reflected in what you pray for. You see what I'm saying? It would be reflected in your prayers. And all this is possible because God's Spirit lives in you. That's how he ends the section. God's Spirit lives in each and every one of you. By this we know that, we are, that he abides in us. But a Spirit whom he has given you. All this stuff is possible. It's possible for you to live as a child of God, reflecting Christ's righteousness in your life and actually loving people because God's spirit lives in you. We're not talking about perfection. We're just talking about it's your desire to do so. You strive to do so. And the spirit makes that possible. The spirit gives you the power to do that. 
And so if, if you if you if you take in the sermon and you and you come up with this list of do's and don'ts, you're not getting the point. This should drive you to repentance, not to a to-do list. If you're coming up with a to-do list right now, you missed my point. This is meant to drive you to the repentance and asking the Holy Spirit to can help you to live in love and not hate. To help you to, to can repent more or to repent more of the bitterness and your jealousy. That I will not continue to live in those things, but I will continue to strive to live as a child of God, reflecting Christ's righteousness in my life and also reflecting the sacrificial love of Christ in my life as well toward anyone and everyone, even my enemies. And the Spirit is the one who makes that possible. Amen? Before I close our time, I want us to have a, just a, a moment of reflection. I know there's a lot of stuff, hard stuff, but it's stuff that my heart needs to hear every day. And so it's an opportunity for us to pray to the Spirit and ask the Spirit to make these things a reality in our life. Let's take a couple moments to do that. But, uh, none of us have it all together. And we know even Paul never had it together. David, a man after your own heart, didn't have it together. Isaac didn't have it together. Abraham didn't have it all together. None of us have it all together. None of us live perfect lives, Father. One, Paul said one thing he does is he forget what lies behind. He press forward to what lies ahead. Oh, Spirit, we need you to be able to press on. We pray that you will enable us to live more in you and less in ourselves. That you will, will be the one who change our hearts and make it like the heart of Christ that we will live for him we have the same values as him the same passions as him our heart would beat with his heart and that we will love Jesus more every day that he will become more beautiful to us as we grow in him more sweet, more awesome, more great and as we see and love him may that same love be reflected in what we have for other people that when we see those that are hurting, our heart will break in compassion. Even our enemies we will love. Lord, we would not be the same. The Spirit, make us uncomfortable in our sin. Make us uncomfortable in our hate and our jealousy. And you, through your power of the gospel, lead our hearts to the throne of grace and repentance every day, every hour, every night. Christ in my prayer. Please stand for the benediction. I've said a lot over the past two weeks, and but it's what our hearts need to hear. To live as a child of God, reflecting Christ in your life, reflecting the love of Christ as well. And God's Spirit will enable you to do that. Here's God's benediction to you. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless you all with peace. Amen. Amen. Please greet one another.